0: When I was a young pastor in the early 1980s, I began one time to prepare a three-week sermon series I was going to do on the subject of money and possessions. And being a bit naive on this, not having had any courses in Bible college or seminary related to the Bible and financial stewardship, uh, you know, what does Scripture say about money and possessions, I thought, well, I'll just, you know, pull some things together and Should be able to cover that in three weeks. Well, the more that I studied, the more that I looked, the more that I searched, the more I realized this was ridiculously impossible to cram it into three weeks. And in fact, the Bible said a whole lot more about money and possessions than I had ever thought despite having really studied the Bible a fair amount. And in fact, Howard Dayton, uh, somebody came up to me who works with the Crown Ministries and Howard in the past is headed Crown Ministries, and uh, Howard's a good friend, and he went through when he was a businessman and just thought, I'm going to underline every verse in the Bible that relates to the subject of money and possessions, and he ended up underlining 2,400 verses, and there's actually others that could be added to that a- as well. So the study I did for those messages be ended up ultimately becoming the core of my book, uh, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, that... Uh, that uh, Ron mentioned, this book, um, which first came out in 1989. And one of you, um, I think it was Jenny, uh, had me uh, sign uh, last night the original edition of Money, Possessions, Eternity. And then this one came out maybe five years ago, completely revised and updated. But it's been one of those surprising things where sometimes you write something And as Wayne was saying, sometimes it doesn't go very far, and then other times it really goes way further than you thought it was going to go. And I don't know how many people have uh, come to me uh, over the years about money, possessions, and eternity, and churches that have studied it through in small group Bible studies and people whose lives have been affected by it. Then this book, The Treasure Principle, which has a different cover than the one um, Ron was showing you, but it's the same book. Uh, this book uh, was one of those things where I thought, well, I, you know, I'm pretty much going to scripture and challenging people just to give away a lot more money. And so this is not what you call the makings of a bestseller. Uh, you know, <laughs> spend money to buy a book that's going to persuade you to give away more money is not a formula for uh, a million seller, but it, in actual fact, it sold about a million and a half copies. And one of the great things about this is because the uh, we're able to support missions groups all over the world through the royalties, we have the double benefit of, one, being able to get it into people's hands in the first place, a message that we would pay to get into people's hands, but then to be able to receive these royalties. Now, if I was using this to provide for my family, related to what Wayne is talking about with business and all of that. That would be a very legitimate purpose, but we don't need it. It it goes way beyond anything that we need, and so we're glad to share this uh, with missions groups all over the world and to see that uh, double uh, benefits. And I know many people in business who um, I'm involved with a group called Generous Giving, and over the years have gotten to know many pretty wealthy, uh, some very wealthy business people who have said, you know, my calling in life is to make money so that I can give money, and we have set a finish line in our lives. And that finish line is, Lord, we're going to live on this amount. We don't need more than that. Now, what we're living on, by global standards, might be a very high level. I mean, a middle class uh, lifestyle for the United States of America is... Wealthy by global standards and by standards of human history, but then they determine whatever comes in beyond that. We're going to give and invest in the kingdom of God. And what's fascinating is to see how secular people, and in particular Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, have you ever you know have have come to some of these same conclusions without knowing Jesus? Because God has wired us a certain way, and as Wayne said, there's certain principles He's built into His world. Have some of you seen the the PBS uh, specials where you've got Bill Gates and Warren Buffett sitting there, and they're going on and on like little kids about how fun it is that they discovered giving, and they're giving to this, and they're giving to this in Africa, and they're helping people here, and they're helping people there, and Warren Buffett looks into the camera at one point and says, all those years I wondered why I was making all this money. Now I know why. It's so I can give it away. I thought, is this great? That somebody, even without the Lord, has simply discovered the joy of giving a principle that God has built into our lives as his image bearers. But at the same time, how sad it is that many Christians have not really discovered that same reality. 40, statistically, 40% of people who regularly attend evangelical churches give nothing. Zero. And there's a lot more statistics about how many people give how much. But the point is that there's so many people have not discovered giving. But you know what? The grace of God is giving. Giving is a synonym for grace. And... God's grace, as we see it in Scripture, is lightning. And when that lightning strikes, there's something that always follows. Here's lightning, then comes what? Thunder. God's grace is lightning. Our giving is thunder. He hits us with His grace... We know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich yet for our sakes, he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. That's 2 Corinthians 8, 9. That's in the middle of a passage that's all about giving. Financial giving. Christians giving. And it's talking about the grace of Jesus. And then the whole passage ends with, Thanks be unto God for his indescribable gift. We love God because he first loved us we give to God because he first gave to us exactly well I think one of the things that strikes me uh, the most about the parallels and overlaps between what God's laid on my heart to share and the things that Wayne has been sharing which I'm deeply appreciating as I know you are as well is the fact that there is no distancing of the spiritual and the material worlds in Scripture. God is Lord over all. There's no artificial distinction between the sacred and the secular. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whether you sell uh, services, goods whatever it is, do all to the glory of God. It's not like you can read the Bible and pray and give to the glory of God, but then all this other stuff where you're just making a product and selling a product, well, that's not to the glory of God. That's, that's different. No, no, that's, if God is in it and God has called you to it and God has gifted you for it and you're doing it, it is to be done and can be done for the glory of God. But going back to how much the Bible has to say about money, the question that I found myself asking years ago is simply, why? Why did Jesus say more about money than he said about prayer or faith? Why did Jesus say more about money and possessions than he said about heaven and hell combined? Now, is it because heaven and hell aren't important subjects? Uh, is, it, is it because faith and prayer aren't important subjects? Obviously, they're critically important. Yet, he says all this stuff about... Think of just the stewardship parables alone about money and possessions. And Then there's numbers of other things he says as well. And why is he devoting all this time and attention... God is not one to waste words. How many questions do you have that you kind of wish the Bible answered? Right? I mean, every time we have a Q&A, wouldn't it be great if God had just directly answered that question? Now, He has answered by giving us principles and truths that we piece together that are sufficient to enlighten us in any number of areas. But the point is, God doesn't waste words. Jesus When he speaks, there's a reason why he's saying all this stuff about money and possessions. Now, I'd like you to uh, turn to uh, a passage, uh, Luke 3, and I want you to look at verse 7. Now, there, uh, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 14, but there are times when you study Scripture that you go to a passage that you've read many times before, and suddenly one time you're reading it and you're struck with something, and I'm sure that this has happened to most of you, and you say, why did I never see this before? I remember, like it was yesterday, being on an airplane... 25 years ago, and reading from Luke chapter 3. Not because I was going to preach on it, just simply just reading it, my Bible reading. And I saw what I had never seen before. And it it kind of reminded me, that sense of enlightenment, when one of my professors in Bible college, John G. Mitchell, who some of you are familiar with, who had memorized most of scripture, great Bible student, and he would get up with his Scottish accent, and he would say, why don't you people read your Bibles? And he stood up one day in a spiritual life conference, he was in probably his 80s by then, and he, he started by saying, I saw something in John 3.16 this morning that I would never seen before being stupid of course I didn't go up and ask him afterwards what it was and he didn't share. He just went right on. But I thought the most powerful thing was simply that he having memorized so much of Scripture and studied it for so many years could see something new in arguably the most familiar verse in Scripture. Well this passage is not the most familiar one in Scripture but it's to me startling what We see here. Look at verse 7. You've got John the Baptist who is standing up in front of the crowds, and he had clearly not been trained in how to win friends and influence people because he said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes, which is normally not, this is not a real seeker sensitive, friendly way to welcome the crowds. But Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't just say you've repented. I want to see changed lives that show you've repented and come into right relationship with God. You want to be baptized then? Okay, is basically what he's saying. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So he takes the thing they're most proud about and just eliminates it. It's like, well, that's insignificant. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So... He's repeated it. He's made clear, here's what I'm talking to you about. I'm talking bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. I'm talking about spiritual change and transformation that is demonstrated in the bearing of good fruit, which he has repeated again. He said it in verse 8. He said it again in verse 9 about bearing good fruit. So then, verse 10, the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? Now, they're actually asking the right question. They understand what it means to bear fruit. They're not asking, how should we feel? They're not even asking, what should we think? Or what should we believe? Because that's not really exactly fruit. Fruit is when something's really happening. It's when you're doing something. So they say, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Okay, so here's the first two things you do to share, to show that you're bearing the fruit of repentance, that spiritual change has happened in your life. You, uh, <clears throat> you give away uh, money to the poor, food to the poor, clothing to the poor. You, you give to people who are in need. So he said two things. One is to share the clothes, and one is to share the food. To give of your money and possessions, essentially. To the needy. Then tax collectors also came out to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? Now it's our turn. We're tax collectors. What should we do? And John said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Because what tax collectors, the way they really made their profits was not just collecting the taxes that were actually due, but adding on, and adding on more at their own discretion. You know, yeah, you owe this much, and then they're going to pocket a good amount of that. And you say, nope, just do your job, and don't collect more than you've been authorized to do. relates directly to what Wayne is saying about business ethics, ethics in, in all of life. Okay? So here's the third thing now. Collect no more than you're authorized to do. And the first two had to do with food and clothing, sharing, giving to the needy. So verse 14. Soldiers also ask him, and we, what should we do? Do you see the the repetition? What should we do? What should we do? What should we do? John answers each. And he said to them, and this time, the first time he, he gave a couple of answers... And then the second time he gave one answer. And this time he gives three answers. Here are three things you should do. Actually, I should say, most translations break it up into three separate things. The ESV here has three things, but two of them are very closely related. Now, many translations say, don't extort money, don't accuse falsely, And be content with your wages. The ESV combines the sense of the don't extort with the false accusation by saying, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. I think that understanding is exactly right. In fact, that's what I've been teaching for a number of years before he saw the ESV, and most translations have those three separate things, one of which is don't accuse falsely. Okay, well, what does that mean? Why would a soldier falsely accuse someone? Well, because soldiers had sort of a... a, It was like a a paramilitary, a police function in society. And so they could come up to somebody, and they could say, ah, that blanket or that horse or oxen, whatever it was, that was reported stolen. I'm accusing you falsely, obviously, false accusation, and now I'm going to confiscate the goods, and then what am I going to do with them? I'm going to keep them. So that's, in all probability, that is what the false accusation is talking about. All right, now... What is it that I'm finding startling about this passage? Well, as I was looking at it on the plane that day, it occurred to me, John did not call a seminar on money and possessions and say, come here to hear my perspective on money and possessions. The people did not say, John... Tell us what to do with money and possessions. The entire subject was spiritual transformation, bearing the fruit of repentance, changed life, and what the evidence of a changed life is going to look like. Six answers are given, and all six involve money, and possessions, including the be content with your wages. Is that remarkable? I mean, wouldn't you have expected there to be something about maybe, you know, your, your, your family life? Uh, something about uh, fasting? Something uh, about prayer? Uh, I mean, there, there's a lot of things that he could have talked about. But he talks about money and possessions. What about worship? What about evangelism? What about Bible study? What about personal relationships? He could have used illustrations or given commands related to all of them. But he didn't. Why? Again, why? Well, it's because there is a fundamental aspect of our relationship with God and our relationship with others... The first and greatest command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. The second, love your neighbor as yourself. The two are 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 bound together. The one comes out of the other. They deeply affect each other. There's something about that that is put to test in a very basic and powerful way when it comes to our attitudes and actions concerning money and possessions. We'll look at other passages. That demonstrate this. I'll just mention several. Luke 19, Zacchaeus volunteers to pay back four times what he'd taken from other people and then to give away half of all he had to the poor. And what was Jesus' response? Today, salvation has come to this house. Now, is he saying the way you get saved is by giving away half your income and paying back those you've cheated four times over? No, but what he's saying is that's fruit that indicates change. Real repentance before God. Today, salvation has come to this house and is demonstrated by a transformed attitude and actions concerning money and possessions. Or Matthew 19, rich young ruler. Jesus knows his attachment to money and possessions. And he looks at him and he says, "By, by the way, you could relate this to the Ten Commandments. Because he knows that he's putting some God before the Lord is God. He's violating the first commandment. And that he is coveting that which belongs to others. Because he would be unwilling to relinquish it himself. If he would be not willing to take what he had and give to the poor. So it's like he's putting to test how he stands in relationship to God's basic commandments. He says... That's all you have, give to the poor, follow me and you'll have riches in heaven. And then it says that Jesus is sad because the man sadly turns away and doesn't follow him and then Jesus ends up by saying how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And So what does Jesus conclude about the state of this man's soul? Well, he sees that his heart is not changed. He's unwilling to change his attitude and actions concerning money and possessions, indicating that he's not saved. He hasn't entered the kingdom of God. So it's a fair question to ask. If Jesus Christ came to us and called us to sell everything and give to the poor, would we do it? Now I don't think he calls most people to do that. There's very, very few in Scripture that he called to do it. The question is, is the state of our hearts willing for that to happen? You see more of this transformation related to money and possessions in a passage that Wayne alluded to briefly earlier, Acts chapter 2, the Proof of the change of the Holy Spirit's work? Well, one of the main things that you see in Acts 2 was a generous sharing and giving of money and possessions. Again, not communism. It's voluntary. It's not enforced. It's coming from a transformed, hardened perspective, liquidating assets to help those who are in need. You see exactly the same thing in Acts 4. So that's it, a manifestation of the Holy Spirit of God. Which raises the question, what things in our lives are we doing related to money and possessions which demonstrate a powerful work of the Holy Spirit of God? Which are so great and radical that they suggest to those around us that it must be the Holy Spirit of God, not just something that a person would come up with on their own. You see another example of that in Acts 19. You have the Ephesian occultists. They come to faith in Christ. And how does Luke basically prove that these occultists were converted? He says they had these magic books, books that were rare and extremely valuable. And when they came to faith in Christ, what did they do? They burned them. Wow. You know, some things you can't even resell and give the money to the poor. Magic books, don't sell them on eBay, burn them. Right? Well, the fact that they did something radical with valuable possessions, which it says, uh, is it uh, 50,000 drachmas, I think it is. Uh, Drachma was a day's wage. 50,000, and that would convert over perhaps in our economy, maybe to $6 million, something like that. These these are extremely valuable. Books in those days were hand copied by scribes. I mean, it's an amazing process. So, extremely valuable, and they were liquidated. They burned them. Not liquidated, because that would be to sell. They burned them. And that was radical. That was the proof of a transformed lie. Now, suppose for a moment that you had two meetings today with a couple of people in your church asking your advice. The first is an elderly woman, and then the other is a middle-aged businessman. The woman comes to you, she says, my cupboards are bare, Um, I only have $2 left, but I feel like God wants me to put these $2 in the offering plate at church. What would you tell her? Well, Maybe you'd say, you know, that's very generous of you, dear, but, you know, God gave you common sense. He knows your heart. He knows you want to give, but you need to eat, and surely God would have you keep that $2 and buy food, and God wants us to do the sensible thing. Uh, if you insist, you could give 20 cents of that uh, $2, but, you know, keep the dollar $1.80 uh, and use it. Live on it. And that seems very sensible, Uh, And then your next appointment is with a businessman whose company is growing, and and he's worked hard, and he says, I'm planning on tearing down my old warehouse to build a bigger one, to store more inventory, and my goal is to generate enough money to put in the bank and retire early and do some traveling and some golfing. Um, So what do you think? What's your answer to that? Sounds good to me. That's the American dream, you know? You've worked hard. Lord's blessed your business, Uh, you know? I hope one day I'll be in the position to do the same. Now, how would your advice to the poor widow and the rich man compare to what Jesus would say? Well, we really don't have to speculate, do we? Because in Mark 12, we meet a poor widow. She put in the temple offering box her last two tiny copper coins. Now, did Jesus say to his disciples she was unwise? That that she did something that dishonored him? That she was naive? No. Here's what he said. I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Now, Luke 12, we meet a rich man. We we're actually never told that this rich man gained his wealth dishonestly. Uh, we don't know. It might have been dishonest. But he might have attended synagogue weekly. He might have visited the temple, tithed, prayed, as, as most Jews did. He worked hard, no doubt. And like any good businessman, he, you know, he wants to expand. And, um, but what did God say to the man, to that particular man? Not to every man who has a business... And makes a profit. But to that particular man. Jesus said. You fool. This very night. Your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get. What you prepared for yourself. And then he added. This is how it will be. With anyone who stores up things for himself. But is not rich toward God. And he said to those around him. Watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, what does this tell you that our instinctive counsel towards someone would be pretty radically different than what Jesus had to say about those two people? Does it mean that there is no place for saving and wisdom? And common sense, of course not. But it does mean that our tendency is to immediately curb, curtail anything that just sounds kind of risky or radical. Whereas sometimes God calls people to do radical things. Did he or did he not lead that woman to give away all that she had? He commended her for it. Whereas we would say, no, that's not wise. Well, if you know someone who's going around all the time and giving away everything and they don't have enough to live on and they're going hungry or their kids are going hungry, they don't have it, by all means, sit down with them and say, don't do that. You need to be more wise. In my life, I know a lot of people and I was going to say I could count on one hand the number of people I know who are such radical givers that they sometimes just are going way, way overboard. Uh, I can real easily count them on one hand. I'm thinking I might be able to count them on one finger. I'm thinking that that's not the biggest problem we have, that's not our biggest tendency. Same thing, rich fool. Is God saying that it's bad, that it's wrong to make money in a business? I totally agree with Wayne. That God calls people to make a profit. Then use that profit to take care of your own family. I mean, if you don't care for your own family, you've denied the faith, you're worse than an unbeliever. And care for your own family. And then beyond that, to help those in your circle of influence and people All over the world. That's a calling of God. That's a good thing. But also understand. That when the condition of the heart. Is to be rich toward oneself. And not rich toward God. That God has some very harsh things to say. To the wealthy. Who are not God oriented. And generous. 1 Timothy 6. Paul says. Here's what you should say to the rich. Be rich in good deeds, generous and willing to share. He didn't just say, here's what you should say to the rich. Don't be rich. He said, be rich in good deeds and generous and willing to share and in this way lay up treasures for a foundation for the coming age. So I think we need to realize what a powerful... Idle money can be the handout that you got look at the side that has ecclesiastes 5 10 through 15 on money and happiness I'm not going to take the time to go through that that's the reason for the handout so you can take it and see it on your own on the other side are treasure principles a couple of these we're talking about and going to talk about but that's just a reference for you but here's what i want to stress what you are getting in this message is not the whole counsel of god This is why I had not chosen, actually, to speak on this subject, but Ryan asked me to speak on this subject, and I am very grateful to do it in a context in which someone else, Wayne in particular, is doing teaching that this is in concert with. This is not contrary to in any way. This is complementary to everything that's being taught and everything I've heard so far, I agree with. And, and I think we need to realize this, is that if you just took stuff on giving by itself, you could say, oh, well, this is making it sound like giving is all we should ever do. Well, of course it's not all we should ever do. It's just that it's not the whole counsel of God. It's just a very important part of the counsel of God, one which we have a habit of neglecting. So so don't look at this and say, oh, well, you just talked about giving, and, and the, there's more to the Christian life than giving, to which I say, yes, but there's not less to the Christian life than giving. There's more, but there is not less, and for many people, and trust me, when you write books on this subject, you talk to everybody who disagrees, and you get lots of letters, and I've gotten a lot of letters on this subject. Uh, A subject of people who think it's going too far and, you know, this sort of thing. But in any case, not the whole counsel of God, but part of the counsel of God. Um, Turn to uh, Matthew chapter 6 and look at verse 19. And by the way, as you're turning there, uh, some of you may have picked up this card. It was sitting out by the handouts. There probably weren't enough to go around. Some of you may not even seen it. I, I did put some extras over at the book table, but it's just a, a card, obviously, no cost. You just It's like a business card, and one side says, God owns it all. I'm his money manager, and it's got three verses of scripture about that. And then the other side says, God cares what I do with the money he entrusts to me. I'd better ask him you know, what to do with it. And then it's got several verses uh, related to that. And I actually made it originally to put in my own wallet next to my cash and my credit card just to remind me, God owns it all. Yeah, ultimately it all belongs to him. So if that would be helpful to you, you're welcome to pick that up or pick up several copies of it if you'd like it. Um, So verse 19, here's Jesus and he is saying, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Then he goes on to talk about the eye as the lamp of the body and no man can serve two masters. And so it's like he's saying... Jesus always has two kingdoms in mind. In this passage, he's talking about the two treasuries of those kingdoms, the two perspectives related to those kingdoms, the good eye and the bad eye, and then the two masters of the kingdoms. There is God, the true God, and then there is mammon, money, the false god. Not money as a generous provision of God, which is a good thing, but the money with a capital M, that starts being your Lord and takes over your life, whom you start serving. No man can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. You can have both God and money, but you can't serve both of them. But the part that I want to focus on is back, going back to verse 19. Don't store for yourself treasures on earth. Now, why? What is Jesus' line of argumentation here? While we might think, is this like asceticism? Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth, because physical things, treasures, are bad. They're evil. No, that's not his logic at all. They're good. They're fine. God created the world. God gave us the ingenuity to do all these things, and these different treasures. He's provided them. But what Jesus is saying, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth... Not because it's the wrong thing to do, but because it's the stupid thing to do. (laughs) Why? Because they're not going to last. He he doesn't have an anti-treasure mentality. He doesn't even say, don't store up treasures for yourself. He turns right around in the next verse, and commands us to store up treasures and, surprisingly to most of us, to store up treasures for who? For yourselves. But stop storing them up in the wrong place and start storing them up in the right place. Now, does it mean that You're going to be left with no earthly treasures. No. But part of it is the condition of the heart that says what's a treasure and what isn't. But part of it is taking these earthly treasures and not renouncing them, but relocating them. Now there are people who say that Matthew 6, this passage, actually is not referring to giving. That it's just an attitude of the heart and nothing more. That would be very convenient... Were that the case? But it's actually not. In the preceding context, you've got giving, praying, fasting. He's developed very early on in this uh, chapter. Um, This is, of course, part of the the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, He's talking about giving. Then he follows immediately saying this about money, and money not being your God. And then he goes on to say, don't be anxious because God's going to provide for you the material Thanks, just like he provides for the flowers and the birds and, you know, all of that. Okay, so right in its own context, the subject of money and possessions is prominent. However, if there's any doubt left in your mind, here's three parallel passages. Luke 12... He says, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. With a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Closely parallel passage. You couldn't ask for more of a parallel passage. And there he says, Sell your possessions, give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags, Treasures in heaven that do not fail. Clearly about giving. In Mark 10, 21, Jesus said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Okay. First Timothy six, I alluded to 18 and 19, the rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Each one of these passages clearly is talking about taking earthly treasures and giving them, investing them in the kingdom of God, so that for eternity there will be treasures in heaven. Now, I think one of the most maligned doctrines of the Christian faith, by many of us as evangelical Christians, is the doctrine of eternal rewards. We don't have time to go into this. I've got a little book called The Law of Rewards, and part of money, possessions, and eternity has to do with this. But I just think that, I've actually had people, one time I spoke on the subject of rewards, and somebody came up to me afterwards, and they said, you know, this works stuff, this works, works is a Catholic thing. It's not a Protestant thing. We don't do works. I mean, works, you no, know, we don't believe you're saved by works, but we believe that God has created us to do good works. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, with the gift of God. Not by works lest any man should boast, Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, move on. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works. So here's, here's the question, why did God make me? To do good works. We are called to do good works, and God promises that he will reward us. Now we can talk about how, of course God doesn't owe us anything. I've had people say, don't talk about rewards. God doesn't owe us anything. See, Yeah, right, so if it was my idea... If I had sat down and said, Oh, I'm going to come up with this idea that God rewards, that there's such a thing as crowns, that there's treasures in heaven, lay up treasures for yourself, that, you know, that uh, I'm going to come up with this thought that uh, of striving after the goal of wanting to win the prize, uh, you know, henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness with the Lord, the righteous judge will give me. A... If I was going to make those things up, uh, that would re- be really bad and presumptuous on my part. It's just that all those things I just said are in Scripture. Okay, so one thing that helps on this subject of rewards, and I know from speaking on this in the past that people get really hung up, is if you say, store up for yourself treasures in heaven, the first thing I say is, I didn't say that. Jesus said it. I'm just repeating His words. That's all. He's the one who said it. And, and an analogy that I use sometimes is that, okay, suppose my daughters who are now... 29 and 31. Uh, Suppose my daughters, uh, when they were in high school, uh, that uh, teenagers, and I said to them, okay, Saturday we're going to have a work day. We're going to work all day around the house in the yard. We're going to do all these things and we'll maybe put in, you know, nine hours at work or something like that. Just full work day. And I'm going to pay you fill in the blank whatever you think's right, $60, $70, $80, $90, I don't know, whatever it is, okay, I'm going to pay you that much, and at the end of the day, we're going to get all, you know, cleaned up, and dad's going to take you out to a nice dinner, hate to leave Nancy out of this analogy, but because, there's reasons why, but Nancy's out of town visiting a friend, okay, all right, so, because in real life, we wouldn't leave her out, but, I'm just trying to take the heavenly father, and what he does with his children, okay, okay, Now, if I said that to my daughters, do you think it would be wrong for them to look forward to earning $70 and think of what they might spend the $70 on? Do you think it would be wrong for them to look forward to having a nice dinner with their dad? Now, suppose my daughter came to me and said, Dad, one of my daughters said, I'll do the work, but it's not right that you should pay me and I don't want to go out to dinner with you because that would be like mercenary. That just wouldn't be appropriate. I should do it just because it's my duty. And there is a parable about, you know, the servant whose attitude is, you just do it. It's your duty. There is a place for that. But what would my response be as a father? I'd be disappointed. No, sweetheart. I'm the one who offered you this. I... I'm going to enjoy you enjoying it. I want to give it to you. I want to take you out to dinner. I want to actually pay you for the work that you do. It makes it completely different because suppose one of so suppose my other daughter had come to me and said, "Oh, because let's say I had said nothing about being paid and nothing about going out to dinner." And so one of the daughters comes to me and says, "Dad, um Okay, we've talked about this, but um, we are not going to do that work unless you pay us and then take us out to a nice dinner. Wouldn't that totally change everything? It would. Now, here's the question, people, to, I hope, once and for all, get us past this roadblock of this teaching of eternal rewards that pervades the Scripture. And here's the question. Was it our idea, eternal rewards, or was it God's idea? It's God's idea, and that's what makes it right. And if you think you're taking the spiritual high ground, and believe me, I've had lots of conversations with people who think this, by saying, oh, no, I don't care. I, I, I don't. I, I think it's mercenary. It's wrong to even think about rewards. Just say, you know what? You may not care about rewards, but God does, and therefore you better. Because he's the one that came up with it. God has made us to want incentives. And so Paul says, you know, he lays out things. He says, I I try to win the race. I, I do my best to get out there and do well. That's what you do in business. Is that a wrong thing? To want to work hard and produce a good product and service and hope for and expect some form of gain and repayment from it? It's not. Anything, as Wayne has said, anything could be misused and you can have a wrong attitude. But these these are good things. So God says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So in essence, Jesus is saying, yeah, the old saying is true. You can't take it with you. But he's kind of adding on this little extra corollary. No, you can't take it with you. But you can send it on ahead. You can take earthly treasures, you can liquidate those assets, and you can, even with the stuff you keep, you can be generous with it, and you can use it for kingdom purposes. And that van that you have, you can drive, you know, youth group retreat, and you can share with somebody else who needs it. And you can, we as Christians should be doing that, sharing our possessions. Why do we all have to buy identical things? You know, so you have... Four Christian neighbors, and uh, do they all have to have a hundred foot extension cord that they use once every two years? Uh, no, let's share, let's, let's be generous in loaning, in giving, in using the assets God has entrusted to us for His kingdom, and there will be reward. David Livingston, the missionary, put it this way I will. Will place no value on anything I have or may possess except in relation to the kingdom of Christ. If anything will advance the interests of that kingdom, he says, it shall be given away or kept only as by the giving or keeping of it I shall most promote the glory of him to whom I owe all my hopes in time and eternity. So, Financial planners you know, will say, hey, when it comes to your money, don't just think three days ahead or three years ahead. Think 30 years ahead to your retirement years. And Christ, who's the ultimate investment counselor, takes it one step further. He says, don't just ask yourself, how will this investment being paid, be paid, paying off in 30 years? Ask yourself, how will it be paying off 30 million years from now? I mean the real long term. Because life doesn't end here. here. We have an eternal life ahead of us that Paul spoke of in 1 Timothy 6 where the life that is truly life, lay up treasures for that life. You know the greatest treasure of all I think? To hear Christ say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter in to your master's joy wow what a what a a powerful statement that will be and then let me make some comments on that statement uh, that where jesus said where your treasure is there your heart will be also you know he isn't saying where your heart is your treasures will be no i think that's true he could have said that but that isn't what he said He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Sometimes people will say to me, you know, I really wish I had a heart for missions. You know, I see these people have a great heart for missions. You know what? Jesus tells us exactly how to get a heart for missions. Put your treasure there. Invest your treasure. You give to church planning in India, and the next time there's an earthquake in India, you'll be down on your knees praying, Because you'll be thinking about those people whose lives you've invested in with earthly treasures, earthly resources. And one day we'll meet in His kingdom. They'll come from the east and the west and sit at the bank with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We'll meet people who as a result of the giving, the investing in their life, and the praying that we have done for people, and the other ways that we have invested in their life. Giving isn't the only way, but it's certainly a significant one. And we'll have the joy of, uh, of seeing that. And one thing that we don't have time to talk about but I'll just raise with you and maybe it will come out in the question and answer sessions is I think in the body of Christ we need models of generous giving. You know most of us know the prayer warriors in our churches. So some, Let's say a young person I want to learn how to pray. I, they know exactly where to go or they can come to one of our pastors and I can tell you exactly who she, you should talk to you go pray with them, you'll learn how to pray. Those are prayer warriors. And what I would like to say is this. All the statistics show that the younger people are, as Christians in the body of Christ, the less percentage of their income they give. People in their 20s give way less proportionally than people in their 30s, who are less than people in their 40s, less than people in their 50s, less than people in their 60s. Did you know that? What does that tell you? It tells me that we are failing the next generation. We are failing to model a lifestyle of generous, kingdom-oriented giving. And so we know who the prayer warriors are. Where are the giving warriors? And there's a critical misunderstanding of never being able to tell your giving stories that some people think Matthew 6 is saying. And I don't think it is. But again, no time for that. So... Let me uh, wrap up by saying this. When God has entrusted so much to us, why do we conclude that he's just given it to us so that we can keep it? I mean, keep some of it, of course. Take care of ourselves. Take care of our family. There's nothing wrong with that. It's right. But we're the most affluent society in human history. We thank God for that. It's a great thing. You don't have to feel guilty about it, but you just realize to whom much has been entrusted of him will much be required or demanded. Suppose the FedEx guy often comes to my door because I work in publishing. I'm sending manuscripts in. Manuscripts are coming back. we got all kinds of stuff that are going on. But suppose that um, I found out that for the last month, all of the packages that I handed the FedEx guy He had taken them home, and opened them up, and kept them. Well, I would have to confront him. And and I come to him, and I say, Wait a minute. All these packages I've been giving you, they haven't gotten to my publisher. They haven't gotten to the people I've intended them for. You've taken them home and kept them? And then suppose he looks at me and says, Well, if you didn't want me to keep those packages, You shouldn't have given them to me in the first place. To which I respond, you're the FedEx guy. (laughs) It's your job to get those packages to the people for whom they're intended. So people, let's stop thinking of ourselves as owning the company and running the show in the kingdom of God. We're God's messenger boys and girls. What makes us think that just because he gives something to us, puts it into our hands, that he always intends for us to keep it, to hold on to it. We're the messenger boys and girls to get it out there. When God richly gives to us, let's look for places to invest it that are going to matter for eternity. So, why are many Christians today afraid to die? Kind of relates back to the whole heaven issue. Well, I I think part of the issue is this. I think we have laid up our treasures on earth. And the things we value most are here in this present earth. But we're going to live in a new earth for all eternity. But because we've laid up our treasures here, every day of our lives, as we get closer to the day we die we're moving further away from our treasures. We're getting closer to the day when we're going to have to say goodbye to our treasures. Jesus is saying, let's turn it around. Instead of laying up for ourselves treasures on earth so that every day of our life we're moving away from them, let's lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. So now every day as I get closer to the day of my death to be with Christ, I'm not moving away from my treasures, I'm moving toward my treasures. He who spends his life moving away from his treasures has reason to despair. He who spends his life moving toward his treasures has reason to rejoice.